We come back to Luke chapter 12, and we have come off of two warnings, and now we come into a passage of Scripture that um, kind of summarizes those warnings, adds to them, I believe, a third one for us this morning. Our first one in chapter 12 was that we were to watch out for, beware of, was pharisaical hypocrisy. If you remember, pharisaical hypocrisy is not saying something and then going out and doing something different like we think of hypocrisy, but rather doing everything right, um, but missing the spirit of why we ought to be doing this. That we do it for the right motives, that we uh, do it with hearts that are humbled and open before the Lord in a right relationship, and that we... uh, minister in that respect. And so the Pharisees would not have been known as hypocrites by what we would modernly use for that that term for. Um, we would typically use it with regard to someone who goes to church on Sunday and then lives like the devil during the week. And that's really not how it's being used here. And so we are instructed by that, that this is for the church. This is for people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ that we beware of the susceptibility that we have of having the leaven of Phariseeism come into our life. Where we do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And we end up condemned. We then saw last week the second warning. And that warning was against covetousness. And again, we found it not what maybe what we expected it to be. We think of covetousness as walking around wanting everything you see. But the example that he gives rather seems to be painting a picture of really what most of us think of as the American dream. That I want to um, build up a reserve, get to a point where I can relax and take it easy and eat and drink and be merry without any concern for others and uh, that we can just have a good life. And God calls such a person living with that as the objective of their life, a fool and guilty of the sin of covetousness. To think that the good life is made up of or consisting of things of this world. But rather, the good life in Scripture is made up and consists of things of God and of the spiritual realm and of eternal things rather than of temporal things. And so, built on that, we are told that if this is not in our lives, that therefore uh, we do not spend our time worrying over it and engaging in um, building up our money reserves, rather that we seek out the kingdom of God and all these things will be taken care of. So we come now into... Uh, more positive command. These are warnings he's been given us thus far. But yet, wrapped up in this is a very strong warning. And we're going to have to take some time on it because of theological implications of it. And uh, that I have been kind of uh, wrestling with a little bit. And it might uh, disturb us somewhat today. I'll warn you that. Um, and it might be something we need to examine further. But from the evidence here, um, we need to really be cautious. And, and that's the whole tenor of this whole chapter. 
be alert, be cautious, beware, be cautious about uh, where you are in your walk with God and to sustain it rightly, godly, and biblically. As we get into this next passage, let's go, Lord, in prayer, though. Lord God, we do thank you for the message before us in your word. We thank you also for your spirit within us to open our hearts and minds to its truth. Lord, we also recognize that we have that will to choose to surrender ourselves to it or resist it. And so, Lord, we, uh, I come before you as one wanting to surrender to your truth. And we pray that um, those that are not might have your heavy hand upon them to continue to convict. But that each one of us might be directed by your spirit, that we might leave here determined to be more of what you want us to be this week than last. We might have a, a drive and a desire and a longing to know your word, to obey it, and Lord, to, as we put it into practice in our life, to see its uh, impact upon those around us. So Lord, we pray that you might guard this time from error and opinion, that you might uh, instruct us by it and also challenge us through it and exhort us this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we just got finished talking about where your treasure ought to be, that your treasure should be in heaven. He was. He has told us, and this is not uncommon instruction for Christ, really, and it's not uncommon in Scripture, the expectation that we are so unattached to things in this world that we are willing, uh, when necessary, to simply sell it off to uh, affect some uh, things for the kingdom of heaven. And we saw that uh, described for us in verse 33, to sell what you have and give alms, uh, which is alms are above and beyond regular giving to care for specific needs, of uh, usually for the poor. Uh, provide for yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure that's in heaven where moth and rust can't affect it. And so we are called upon to do this. This is not inconsistent with any of what Christ has taught elsewhere um, when we are dealing particularly with people for whom uh, worldly material wealth is important. Of course, we found that rich ruler who came to him and said, what must I do? Oh, you must keep the law. I've done that since I was a kid. Oh, well, then just one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it away. Oh. And he went away sorrowing because he had great wealth. And he wasn't willing and interested in parting with that wealth. Um, and so when we look at the early church and we see them exemplifying this in their behavior of uh, seeing a need, recognizing they have resource to meet that need, and, and they sell that and, and accomplish that, uh, we might look at some of that activity and say, well, it's a little short-sighted. But I'm going to tell you something that's really radical here, and that is Christians should be, uh, in this world, short-sighted, and in the world to come, very long-sighted. The short-sightedness are those people who want to gather things here um, and for their quote-unquote retirement, and they haven't prepared anything for eternity. That is the truly short-sighted ones. 
uh, we might be viewed as short-sighted on this earth, saying, well, you haven't, you haven't set yourself up for your retirement. You haven't set yourself up for next week. You haven't set yourself up for... But if we're following the Scriptures, um, from what I can tell, I can trust God with next week or next month or a year from now or my retirement if such a thing exists in my day when I get there. I'm not sure it's going to. I'm not sure I'm going to get there either. But uh, I'm pretty sure God's Word says that we can trust God in those areas and we can uh, not fret over them. And so we have all of this given to us and that final really two principles or two truths here that he's communicated at the end to seek the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to in verse 31. Then 34 uh, of chapter 12 of Luke, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And he wants to address this. What are you seeking after? Where is your heart's longing? And where do we look for evidence of where our heart is really longing for? And so he's going to give some further instruction on that, I believe, and some very strong teaching here. So let's pick up verse 35. It says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And he says, right away, this is a way, figuratively, of saying exactly what he said two other places, and that is, beware, be on the watch, be on guard. And this situation, though, it's more of a positive. Instead of being alert to something negative, you need to be alert to something positive. Have your waist girded and your lamps burning with anticipation and preparation that you are ready should something happen. Something is coming that we need to be ready for, ready in our heart, ready with our, all of our resources, ready with our body, ready with our attention. We must have this readiness, he calls us to. And so we are to gird ourselves. The idea really there is almost for warfare or for working in the fields, laboring hard. Um, and also the idea of the lamp burning is that we are waiting for the arrival of someone. We find out who that is in verse 36 that we are like men who wait for their master who's gone off to get married. And so we are like those kinds of men. Does it say we are those? No, we are like them. This is how we are to be watching is as those who would um, who have a master who's gone off to collect his bride. And we're not as familiar with that aspect of, of in our culture of, of uh, the marriage rituals of the day. But typically the, the groom would go and gather his, go to the bride's house and collect his wife. Um, big fanfare, big big uh, a parade, if you will, and uh, have a feast. He would return and then bring her to his house. And the expectation was that when he arrived, there would be further attentions given towards this this uh, new relationship. And... Um, and so the servants need to be very alert, very alert, because if he shows up and they're not prepared to receive him and his bride, heads will roll, as the saying might go. Um, and we might find it more literal than we want here in our passage before us this morning. But the expectation is, is that your master is coming. You know he's gone for a very important purpose. You know he's going to return because not only because that's the cultural norm, but because that is his declared intent. I'm going to go get my bride. I'm going to return with her. And you ought to be watching for me. When I come, I expect everything to be ready, everything in its place, everyone on their toes, everyone dressed and, and trimmed and, and ready to fully receive her. No late arrivals will be ex- acceptable. Uh, no delays, nothing. 
And so this is how we are to be in this world. It says we ought to be like that so that when our master comes and knocks, we will open to him. Look at the last word of verse 36. I like this. Open to him immediately. No hesitation. No uh, quick scurrying around to do the last minute details because the details have all been taken care of. We have girded ourselves. We have done the labor. The lamps are lit. They're full of oil. And of course, we have another parable that's comparable to that. Um, and so we, we are ready and there isn't any delay. It's almost like we, we are anticipating his knock. And as soon as he knocks, boom, we're at the doorknob and we're opening the door. And, and we're just that interested in our master's coming uh, from this very important trip that he has taken. And so we ought to be on watch, on guard. We ought to be uh, ready and have a, a readiness plan spiritually for our lives. So what happens if we are of this quality in our Christian walk? That we are living, and I don't want to say looking, I want to say living, living expectantly. See, a lot of Christians I find talk expectantly, look expectant, but they don't live expectantly. And that's the difference that Christ calls us to, and it's a huge difference. And so he calls us to live with that expectation that at any moment, Christ is going to come. Well, what is the result if we are living such lives? Verse 37 said, Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when he comes, will find watching. And are we on watch? Are we, are we there ready and, and looking, peering out the window and every sound, we're opening it up to see if, if, if that's him, um, that we are having that expectation upon us if we comes and he finds us in that way with everything ordered in our life and ready to present before him it says oh what a blessed state that would be oh how blessed you are how blessed and this is going to kind of surprise us a little bit for you would expect that the blessing is is that the master comes in and we get to serve him and everything's wonderful, right? That's what we would think. And that and that there's just peace and he's he's gonna sit down and lazy boy, he's gonna get his cup of joe, and he's gonna smile at us all, right? And we think that's great, that's you know, and we'll put the slippers on him and, and uh, hand him the newspaper and, and he'll be happy and we'll all be at peace and it'll be wonderful. It doesn't say that. That's not how it's describing the blessing of being so prepared that when the Master comes, everything is ready in our life. We open our hearts and lives up to Him immediately. We are ready and, and to give ourselves to Him. It says, here's what's going to happen. It says, Assuredly I say to you that He, that is the Master, will gird Himself, have them, that is the servants, sit down to eat, and will come and serve them. Isn't that incredible? Here we are preparing ourselves for our master's arrival, setting our house in order, making sure that all the things that are under our stewardship, our management in this world is, is rightly ordered as God would have it ordered, that we then, uh, when he is arrival, we present it to him and say, here it is, here's what I have, here are, and, and we have other parables, parable of talents. I mean, this is a recurring theme. Here I have, we think, well done. But he doesn't just say, well done, and now continue serving. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now I'm going to make you ruler. 
I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to serve you. And here he says he's going to come in and the master is going to gird himself for labor. You've been doing it, laboring for his kingdom. Now he's going to gird himself. He's going to set you down, feed you, and care for you and serve you. Phenomenal. Totally unexpected, isn't it? Not what I... But yet that's exactly what Jesus Christ offers us. You see, heaven isn't a place where we necessarily go... Uh, certainly we will be serving Christ, but we understand who the greatest benefactors of that scenario are, don't we? It is us. He had heaven's glory forever. We are not enriching heaven by our presence. I, trust me, we aren't. Heaven isn't lucky to have us there. Didn't need us there. By God's great love and grace and mercy, He was going to make it open to us, available to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus leaves heaven's glory, comes and girds Himself, if you will, to serve us. And that service will be completed when He comes again. And we will be brought into the kingdom, not as servants, but as joint heirs of Jesus Christ, if... And I want to be real careful with this this morning. I want to speak it very carefully later on. If we are found to be faithful, we are brought in in, in a uh, new role, a role where, where we have been the recipients of the service of Jesus Christ. And so, wonderful. This is the kind of blessing God has for you. This is no meager blessing of just being satisfied that we did a good job and got a pat on the back. This is a significant blessing that God offers us through Christ Jesus for those who will be faithful in placing their treasure in the kingdom of God, who will be seeking out the kingdom, who will be living that Christian life faithfully and consistently and having their hearts set on the things above and not on things in the earth. And so the master comes and actually serves the servants. What a powerful statement of blessing Jesus describes there. And it says that if it's not the first watch, maybe he comes in the second watch and the third watch. And uh, it doesn't matter when. And, and Christ here is kind of interjecting the idea that it might be a little while. There might be something that delays the master. You know, we might think, well, there's certain travel time there and there's a certain travel time back and the party's going to take about this long so we can expect him about this point. But maybe there's going to be delay. And it might be the second or third watch. The expectation is, is that you're going to be ready nonetheless. And there will be a, a blessed state there. He then switches the metaphor a little bit and he, and he goes over and talks about a thief. And we're going to uh, look at that as well. The idea that if you knew exactly what time a thief is going to come, a master's going to be ready. You know, he's going to have his shotgun and his dog's out and he's going to have, right, he's going to be ready if he knows exactly when the thief is going to come. He's not going to let him break in and steal. He's not going to allow him to surprise him and, and uh, take anything from him, but rather um, he's going to be prepared. 
And so we are called in verse 40 to also be ready with these two metaphors of the idea of waiting for your master or the idea of if you knew the time, you'd be ready. Well, you, we do. We are told to recognize the times. We are told to recognize the fact that Christ can come at any moment and that we have a readiness about us. And that readiness is, is not just um, those that are going to go up and sit on a mountaintop, but that we are about our Father's business, that we have our heart on the kingdom, that we are seeking what is above and not things that are below. That we are looking for the Father's good pleasure, which is to give us the kingdom. We have a kingdom not made with hands that we are citizens of and we want to live according to that citizenship. And so we are called to be ready for the Son of Man is coming and not necessarily um, at a time that we expect. And this is something that the early church had to deal with. They were expecting Him at various times. Erroneously. They, they, they were mistaken. Um, the disciples stood there and stared at the clouds in Acts chapter 1. They were like, what are you doing? Well, He said He'd come back. Well, they were wrong. He said, what are you doing here? You've got work to do. He also gave you commands. And if he was just going to turn around and come back and get you, why would he give you all these commands? Figure it out, guys. You know, they're a little dense there. You know, if, um, if I uh, walk away and, I, and I'm the steward of a job or a, or a business and I say I want this, 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 you know, I've got a list of 20 things that need to be done before I get back from my trip and I turn around and come back 10 minutes later and you go, well, that's kind of what the disciples were doing. They were given an extended uh, instruction um, and weren't attentive to it. Of course, at that point, they hadn't been filled with the Spirit either. Um, he hadn't come yet with, in talks too. Um, but we also find uh, that the Christian community starting to wonder, you know, I thought every, Christ was going to come before any of us died. Well, obviously, that wasn't the case. Although the Thessalonians may have had that idea introduced to them, um, that wasn't really the case. And we knew that going all the way back to the death of, of believers in the book of Acts under persecution. And then, of course, there was the idea that, well, Christ is going to come back before John dies. John himself says, no, that's not what Christ meant. Um, and uh, so please get rid of that idea uh, and so there's always been these wrong notions of Christ's return. The statement is that he comes at a time that we don't expect. What I like to do is connect this to the idea when Christ says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The idea is, will anyone be expecting him when that time comes? Peter is concerned as well. Um, is this, who's this for? Who, what is all this instruction for about being prepared and ready and on watch and on guard? And is for, is, are you talking to just the, the 12 of us now? Remember the beginning of it was just the 12. We had the interjection of a big, large, multitude, crowd, ministry there. And Peter is now kind of going, are you, are we still talking to everybody? Or are you just talking to us now again? And, uh, the Lord basically, you might say, doesn't really answer his question very well, but he does. His statement is for any who want to be counted 
as a faithful servant. This instruction so far of being ready and of living our lives with a readiness for Christ's any time return is for any who would want to be considered a faithful and wise servant. So we come into this parable, a secondary parable, to answer the question about the first parable. In verse 42, we're going to find four different kinds of servants here. I know some of you will have little uh, labels in your Bible. They break it up into sections and try to give you little labels of what it's about. And it'll probably label there as the, the faithful versus the uh, wicked servant or something along that line. Uh, not two servants being compared here, but four. There are four different kinds of stewards being described in this parable. And we want to break them down because I believe Scripture points to all four of these repeatedly. We've already been introduced to this concept uh, in some of the other parabolic teaching of Christ. And I think we're going to find it extended here. Who is this instruction for? That we are to gird ourselves, be alert, have our lamps trimmed, be watchful, be on guard, and be expectant and live that way. Who is this for? Is for whoever wants to be a faithful and wise servant among you. Whether it's among the twelve, whether it's among the multitude, or whether it's among a group of people in Albuquerque, New Mexico this morning. Whoever among you wants to be counted as a faithful and wise steward, this is who I'm teaching this for. But we're going to break this down to four groups very quickly. It says, the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward? Whom his, master, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. So we have that faithful and wise steward. We are called upon to be this manager. Steward is just a manager. Someone entrusted with stuff and to take care of. They don't own the stuff. They just take care of it knowing that they have to give accountability to the owner of it. So we have the owner showing up and the faithful and wise steward is one who will be actively doing what he is supposed to be doing with the master's resources when the master shows up. And he has been faithfully doing it. That we do it knowing the master could come at any moment. The moment he comes, will he find me doing what I should be doing? Now we've all worked with people, hopefully we've not all been those people, who... Try to figure out when the master comes, right? About how long will it take uh, for the master to come home? And we try to figure out, um, well, how long does this job take? And how long can I delay starting it? And so I'm done when they get home, okay? And I have been guilty a little bit of that in my life. Um, not necessarily on the job that I'm being paid for, but on the job at home that I don't get paid for dollars and pennies anyway. Um, when my wife goes to work, I kind of know what time she's going to get home. Used to. I don't anymore. Now she's a hospice nurse. She gets home at weird hours. I just, it's very disturbing that she can come home any time during the day, um, between patients, after patients. There's, just, there's no rhyme or reason. But back in the day, when I had little, little kids, preschoolers, 
you know, little ones, and she had a set schedule, they'd be in their jammies, they, the place would be a mess, there'd be dirty dishes, but I knew that right about 8 o'clock she'd be coming in the door. So about a quarter after 7, guess what? Go get dressed. <laughs> Clean up the room. Clean up the kitchen. We're going to do the dishes. Why? Because, well, my wife's saying, and she doesn't want to find this when she gets home. And we kind of knew when that was going to happen. Well, you know what? We're all kind of guilty of that, and we don't like working with people like that. But I think in our Christian life, we get a little bit like that. We're kind of like, well, you know, when I think Christ is real, when I really believe Christ is going to come, I'm going to get really serious and busy. Well, you don't know when he's coming. And it could be any time. And the question is, have you been and continue and are you just routinely doing what you're supposed to be doing when he comes? If you don't know when the master's coming, then you endanger yourself every time we become lax in doing what we're supposed to be doing. We endanger ourselves of him showing up and finding us giving our hearts to this world. And so the faithful and wise steward, the one who's going to gird himself, trim those lamps and be ready, watchful, on guard, and going to be expectant and ready, um, is a person who's going to be doing what his master would want him to be doing. So when his master comes, whenever that is, he's finding him doing it. Why? Because he's been faithfully doing it all along. And this is the blessed one. This is the one that is given rulership. I want to emphasize that. This is the one who is given rulership in the kingdom of the Master. We might often think of this as like Joseph, who was made second in the kingdom of of Egypt prior to that, made as good as the jail keeper in jail, and prior to that was taking care of everything. Potiphar didn't know what he had or what he didn't have. He was given that kind of authority. But we know it's going to go even further than that, 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 that we are brought in as sons, as heirs. If, and, we, and we're missing this condition, I believe, in our concept of this rulership, of in, in the kingdom of heaven. If we are faithful and wise stewards of what God entrusted to us. This is conditioned promise of God. Of if. And I've tried to study carefully some of the other passages that talk about us ruling and reigning. And what I find consistently is our rule and reign with Christ is not automatically aspect of the gospel, message of receiving the gospel, but of our faithful service to his kingdom. Now, that's radical. I warned you there was something coming, right? We have been ingrained in our thinking that as soon as you accept Christ, yes, you experience adoption as sons, but we automatically get this rule and reign in eternity regardless of how we live for him here. And I cannot find that anywhere in God's word. Rather, I find that our ruling and reigning is conditioned. Those conditional clauses are if. When you see if, 
or you see something along the lines of um, uh, this servant compared to another servant, we're going to see that that um, there, there's a couple of these that are going to be very disturbing to us here later on. Um, if we are faithful, then we are given this administration, this rule, this reign. I do not find it a carte blank uh, aspect of the graces found in our salvation. Yes, we have this personal relationship with God, um, but I also find that this idea of ruling and reigning is reserved for those. There is distinguishments made in heaven. I've taught in the past, I believe there are distinguishments of punishment for all eternity, um, but I believe there's also distinguishment of heaven. That is, that heaven for some will be different than heaven for others. We'll still have the presence of Christ. We'll still have the river of, of life. We'll still have the trees and the fruit from them every month in its season. And we'll still have that. But there will be a distinction. We find it in Revelation right away where we find that there's a, a reserved special place for those who have died, who have been martyred for the name of Christ. We find that Christ doesn't dispel this. He could have easily dispelled this. Um, when the disciples said, oh, can, you know, one, mommy once, can I have one of my sons on your right and one on the left? Christ could have easily dispelled the concept that there is going to be distinguishments by saying, you know, they're all going to be the same when we get up there. But he doesn't, does he? He says, no, it is not for me to decide that. It will be decided in eternity and it will have some basis for that decision. He doesn't wipe out the idea that there is going to be gradation in heaven. He could have easily done it right then and there, but he doesn't. He said, no, those special places are going to be reserved and they're going to be reserved for those who will be the servant of all, who will serve the least of my kingdom. So the idea that we have that all Christians, once we get to heaven, will all rule and reign with Christ, I do not find in Scripture. I find that those who are faithful and wise will rule and reign with Christ. I find conditional clauses and statements um, within the passages that talk about those. I found them consistently. Here we find it again. That this blessed state of having rule and reign will go to those who faithfully and wisely do what their master wanted them to do all along. Find continually doing when he comes. And it is him, verse 44, it is him that the master will make ruler over all that he has. It is him that he will be entrusted much. We come now to the second servant. So I call this first servant the faithful, obedient servant. He was obedient. He was doing what he's supposed to be doing and was ongoingly doing that. And so when the master shows up, doesn't matter when the master shows up because the guy's going to be doing what he's supposed to be doing when he shows up, period. It's the easiest way to make sure that you aren't caught off guard is to always be doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that holds true, by the way, tomorrow morning when you go to work. The best way to not have to ever worry about whether or not the boss is looking is do your job whether he's looking or not. 
then it doesn't really matter whether he's looking, does it? We come to verse 45 when we come to another servant. But if, there's another condition. So that's one condition. The first conditional servanthood steward is one who is wise, faithful, obedient, doing what his master wanted him to do all along the way. Second servant. This is the evil, false servant who was purposefully disobedient. If the mass, if the, if that servant, the one that, the, the master went away, that servant, instead of deciding to be faithful and wise and doing what he's supposed to be doing, says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. So what's the first thing he's denied? The return of the master. Why is it, is it so important that we hold to the imminent return of Christ? Is because if we don't hold to that, our hearts get skewed. They begin thinking of worldly things instead of heavenly things. And this has been the case in church history. We can look back and say, okay, where have we gotten, you know, we look at post-millennialism, ah-millennialism, and the different millennialisms that basically believe that either we're going to do our job so well that we're going to bring Christ's kingdom on earth or we are the rulers of a spiritual kingdom on earth, amillennialism, and we have these, these concepts come in. What are they built on? They're built on the idea that Christ isn't coming back. They have said in their hearts, he's not coming back. As soon as we say in our hearts, guess what? You're going to get into trouble. Theologically and practically, you're going to get into trouble, and that's what has happened. And if you want to, I mean, it, it, I'm not going to put this down as a hard and fast rule today, but, but you can examine those movements that have not held to the personal return of Christ, and you'll find them getting the kind of trouble that Jesus talks of here, theologically and practic- in their practice. So let's look at it. My heart, my, my heart, in my heart I'm saying, my master's delaying is coming. So what does he do? He begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. What's he doing? He's abusing his authority and he's just serving himself. He's just meeting his own fleshly appetites. He's just taking care of himself and he's cruising through life. He's got all the resources of the master. They don't belong to him, but he acts like they belong to him. You ever met anybody like that? All of us, to some degree. And so he, he acts like they're all for his own personal enjoyment. We just got done talking about someone like this last week. The guy whose ground produced plentifully. And he says, what should I do? Well, I, I, he should have been interested in caring for his neighbors and for spreading the wealth around a little bit. He should have been these things. But instead, he says, I'm going to build up big barns. I'm going to heap it up so I can lay back and eat, drink and be merry and have a life of ease. God says he's a fool. Well, here's this guy. What is the thought underneath someone who claims to be a Christian? And remember, this is all warning us who claim to be followers of Christ. Hypocrisy of Pharisees. Covetousness, which is idolatry, which is not tolerated. Who we make these claims, 
And now, here we claim this, but we don't really believe Jesus is coming back. And so we're using all the resources he put into our hand that he expected us to use that for the kingdom of God. Instead, we're using it for our own selfish interests. And he calls that servant wicked. It says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. Of course he's not looking for him. He doesn't believe he's coming. Right? When you don't believe he's coming back, you're not going to ever look for him. So here he comes. What's going to happen? An hour he's not aware of. And the purposefully disobedient, evil, false servant gets cut in two, it says, and is appointed with the unbelievers. That word appointment the whole idea that he's going to... That, that's his destiny. That is his, the end. There is no second chance. Do you see the harshness? This is someone who is a Pharisee. This is someone who is covetous. This is the things he's warning of you. And now he's telling you, here's what's going to happen if you're not living your life for me then you are not really my disciple. And here's your end, is that if you start thinking in your mind, Christ isn't coming back, you start living everything for yourself and your own interests. You think you can abuse people and have no accountability before me. You're going to live out your whole days for yourself. You're going to live as the Pharisees. And God, remember, he just said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pharisees, teachers of the law. Remember that back in chapter 11? All the woes. What's going to happen? You're going to be given the same punishment, maybe even a worse punishment because of your access to the knowledge of the truth in the end. It says you're going to be appointed his portion with the unbelievers. You are going to be of that number that Christ says, depart from me, I don't know you. You're a worker of iniquity. You are not one of mine. Yes, you went to church every Sunday. Yes, you, you talked a good talk. But in your heart, in your heart, you didn't believe that I was going to come and therefore you lived for yourself and not for my kingdom. And you followed your own God and it wasn't me you were following. Because you didn't live for me. You didn't live with my kingdom in view. The second servant is an evil, false servant who is purposefully disobedient. First servant, a wise, faithful servant was obedient, faithfully obedient, no matter what. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So it doesn't matter when Christ comes, because when He comes, I will be about His business. Now, verse 47, we have a new servant, a new condition. Why do I know it's a new condition, not an extension of the last condition? He has a different end. He has a different end. Let's look at it. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. And uh, this one is just one verse. This is all we have about this one. I call, what I write down here? The foolish servant who is lazily disobedient. The first one was purposefully disobedient. I mean, I should say the second. second servant was purposely disobedient. 
They didn't believe that Jesus was going to come. They didn't think they'd have to answer anybody. They are their own man. They're Mr. Independent. Very American philosophies here, aren't they? Um, and, um, and I have my rights and on and on. The purposely disobedient are walking that way. Their end is destruction. They are going to be sent off uh, with weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're going to be appointed with the unbelievers. This one, though, is foolish servant, not a false servant, but a foolish servant who is disobedient out of sheer laziness. Or he knew what he's supposed to be doing. He knew what the master's will was. But he did not do two things. He didn't prepare himself to do the master's work and he didn't do the work. Now, I'm going to take a deep breath here and say, I would contend that there is a mammoth, overwhelming majority of the church that falls in this category. That we know exactly what we're supposed to be doing. But we don't prepare our hearts and lives to do it. And we don't, prepare, we don't ever actually do it. We give lip service to it. We have seminars over it. We have we read books about it. We write books about it. But we never actually prepare to do it. And we never actually go out there and do what God wants us to do. We know it. We can teach it. We can study it. We can talk about it. We can we can uh, talk uh, uh, about methodology. We can, But we don't actually ever do it. We're not ever really preparing our hearts to do it. We don't have a mindset leaning towards doing it. We just like to sit around and talk about it. It's how most of us talk about evangelism. You know, we're going to take classes on it. We're going to read books about it. We're going to study this guy's methodology and that guy's methodology. I mean, I got a whole shelf of books talking about different methods of how to share Christ. Fundamentally, what do you have to do? You have to go do it. Because just talking about it is not really doing it, is it? And if you're just reading all those to discuss, well, the this this methodology works in this situation. That this really won't work with people in this, and and we can sit there and discuss. Well, this will work with with those that uh, in the olden days have some concept of of Christ or the the Bible, but it won't work today because people are ignorant of that. And we could talk, but fundamentally, we could talk about it and never do it. And this is the conclusion. Here's a servant who is not wise, who is not faithful, who's lazy, not ignorant, just lazy, doesn't, I mean, not, not living, not, not being, not doing what the other servant did that, that, you know, just says, oh, Lord's not coming back and I'm going to do what I want and I, you know, I don't have to answer anybody and, and all of that and spends the splurges all on him. This person just uh, just um, never gets around to it. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I just don't get... I'll get there. You know, what once... Oh, I probably need to read more books. I'm kind of afraid. What if they say... What if they slap me? Well, you call the police in our country. What if they spit on me? Apparently you call police for that too now. Um, what if they don't like me anymore? You know, you can what if yourself right out of every single command God gives in his book. And I've seen people do it. We'll say God says this. Oh, what, what if, what if, what if, what if. And they, and they convince themselves right out of obeying it. 
And this is the foolish servant. What's his conclusion? I think he's going to be in heaven. But notice what it says. He's going to be beaten with many stripes. And here I'm going to introduce some things that you might want me to defend later on. I'm more than willing to do that. The judgment seat of Christ. We have, I think, for too long vacated the idea of true judgment. We have made it reward judgment only. That that's where we're going to line up and, and uh, figure out all the good things we did and get our crowns. And we've missed something. And that is every description of that describes that there's going to be fire there. That a bunch of what you do is going to be burned up. And I would contend that there's going to be Christians getting stripes put on them. Because you knew what to do and just didn't want to do it. Oh yeah, you didn't, you knew Christ and you, and you love him and, and all those things, but, uh, and you learned and you studied it and you're not the Pharisee, you're not the, you're not the wicked false servant, but you're just the lazy servant. You just don't want to do it. You don't have some other God. You just don't really serve the God you have. And I want to tell you, it's time that we started being a little more fearful about the judgment seat of Christ instead of so expectant of the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, I can't wait to get my rewards. That's not what the Bema seat was all about, folks. They issued out stripes right there on the seat. Right there, on, right there in front of it. It was like... Whip him now. Throw the lashes on his back right there. And I say, oh, that can't be because we're going to be with Christ there. Yeah, and, and at a, some point, uh, once the judgment seat is concluded, we're going to go into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yes, all that I, I understand. And I know that heaven's going to be a wonderful place um, filled with glory and grace. And all that. I know that. But the judgment seat of Christ is real. And it's serious. And I want to remind you that there are tears in people's eyes before they walk into heaven. Christ says he has to wipe them away. Where do those tears come from? I believe they come from verse 47. People who knew God's will and just didn't prepare themselves to do it and didn't do it. I think it's important to, to separate these two. Okay? Because if the master comes and you're getting ready and you, and you are in your heart wanting to do it and you just haven't had opportunity to do it, that's one thing. Okay? And so, um, you know, if someone got saved here today and we don't schedule baptism for uh, three months from now, um, God's not going to hold it against them that they didn't do his will. Because they were preparing themselves and wanting to do it. Okay? And just didn't have opportunity. But don't use that excuse for too long, folks. (laughs) Fundamentally, the opportunity to do God's will is readily at hand most of the time. But he does distinguish between these two. That there are some things we should just be doing because we can do them. Other things we should be preparing to do when the time comes that we can do them. 
But I want you to see that this person is going to be beaten with many stripes. I would contend this happens at the judgment seat of Christ because there's no evidence that this person is going to be sent out with the unbelievers. And brethren, this is a scary verse for someone like us, me. You know why? Because it's my profession to know this book. You know what that means? If anyone in this room should know God's will, it should be me. And if I'm not doing some of it, there's a fire at the judgment seat of Christ waiting for me. There's a cat of nine tails waiting for me there. There's some tears at my judgment seat if I'm not obeying or working towards obeying, designing my life to obey. Ooh, that's a cool statement, isn't it? Are you designing your life to obey God's Word? See the plans you're laying? Are they in accordance with God's truth? And the more you know God's truth, the more you should expect to obey. And that's going to come out in the next verse here. First servant was faithful, wise, because he's obedient always. Second one was evil and false because he was purposefully disobedient. Third one was a foolish servant because he was lazy and, is, and therefore disobedient. There's a fourth one, verse 48. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required to whom much has been committed of him. They will ask the more. And so here's the uninformed servant. So you have the faithful, wise servant. That door just opened by itself. It's amazing. You have the faithful, wise servant. Can you close that? Thank you, angel. I'll wait for him. For those of you... We have a faithful, wise servant who's obedient. An evil, false servant, disobedient on purpose because he has said in his mind, I don't have to, I will never have to answer to God for this. I can serve myself and that person will be in eternally, will be eternally in flame. The foolish servant who knew but didn't do it. His disobedience was lazy. Then the uninformed servant who just didn't know. I want you to notice that that kind of disobedience isn't just ignored. It is judged. But it's not judged as severely. Instead of many stripes, he will get few stripes. You see, it's still wrong to disobey God even if you really hadn't fully learned it. God still holds us accountable. Why does he hold us accountable? Because as his children, as, as believers, we have his word, we have the spirit within us to guide us into all truth, and therefore we are accountable for all truth. But God is understanding. He understands the limitations that are here in terms of uh, learning and growing and maturing. 
And so he says, no one told you. You never discovered this truth. You either because of the time constraints between when you accepted Christ and the Master came or perhaps because somebody was only feeding you milk over and over and over again all your life um, and you were thought that was good and you never matured, um, you're going to be beaten with a few stripes. It's a condition that I think I will be held accountable for if there are people out of my congregation. I think that makes me guilty of verse 47 if 48 is true of you. Because among my responsibilities is to communicate to you to teach you God's will. But I cannot, will not ever be able to make you do God's will. But it is my responsibility to teach you God's will. And so if I don't do that, I'm violating God's will for my life and I expect many stripes if I were to do that. Oh, that pastors would think that way. I'm telling you, for the last two weeks, I have been mulling this and studying on this and and it's something we're not teaching. We're not teaching our churches that the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be stripes, there's going to be fire, there's going to be pain, there's going to be tears. You're going to have to stand before Jesus who came and died for you and say, all the resources you gave me, I, uh, well, I just never got around to using them for you. Too busy using them on me. You really going to stand before God and say, you, you said that? Where'd you say that, God? In this book that you don't read. On your la- in your language, don't read it. Yeah, you deserve a few stripes. And so we have here, probably just shattered your whole concept of, boy, do I want the Lord to come now? <laughs> Please, Lord, wait a little while so I can get this straightened out. I've been thinking that for two weeks. Um, it's called a judgment day for a reason. And we gloss over the fact that Everything in our life that's wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up on that day. And we're all sure that that's just a little campfire off on the side of the judgment seat. Let me tell you something. When this generation comes before that judgment seat, it's going to be a bonfire you've never seen before. I'm convinced of it. I can't talk about other generations But I know this generation of Christianity, in Western Christianity at least, and there's going to be a bonfire that day because there's a lot of wood, hay, and stubble in our life. Very little gold, silver, and precious stone that can endure the fire of God's judgment. There's going to be stripes laid out that day. And when I come to the second part of verse 48 and find out to whom much has been committed, they're going to ask even more. This is a two-edged sword, what we do today. Every time you communicate God's truth to people, you're giving them a two-edged sword. It can cut one way. And we can talk about, oh, how wonderful it is, like the psalmist. Oh, what, what a blessing it is to have your word 
to know it and to for you to communicate to us that I can know what God wants and I can I can know what's in his mind and his heart, what he's like, what he's done for me, and I can enjoy all of that um, and I can walk with him. I could not walk with God if it weren't for this knowledge. And so that there's there's that edge of it, and I and we all love that edge of it. Oh, this is such a wonderful gift of God, and it is a wonderful gift. But there's another edge. And that edge is there's an accountability for this gift. There's an expectation by God upon us for this. Is that since He has done so much for us, He expects us in thanksgiving to Him to return and walk with Him, to truly do what He asks us to do, to be obedient to what He has communicated to us. You cannot miss it if you have been Sunday nights and seen how he speaks to the prophets. Oh, he has great love for Israel. Sends them prophet after prophet after prophet. What do they do? They tell him, shut up, go away, kill them, imprison them, run them off, ignore them. And God says, oh, you treat my blessing like that? You're going to be hiking buck naked back to Babylon. And they did. If they lived. There are stripes, folks. If we, who have such access to God's truth, I mean, think about it. We have incredible access. We have this in our own language. We, we, we sit here and squibble and squabble over versions, but we have it in spades. We have God's Word, don't we? We can go right over here to Hosanna, right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and get it on a little computer thing and listen to it. And you get a little MP3, you can listen to it. You can get it in any language. Take your pick. We can get God's Word morning to night. Uh, we've got access to literature that most of the world doesn't have. Um, we have access here. And I'm afraid how many stripes it's going to equal. If we simply get all this knowledge and do nothing with it. So when Christ says, beware, when Christ says, watch out, when Christ says, be ready, I think we need to take it pretty seriously. He does not say, well, once I come, I'll all be forgiven. No. There's a judgment that we have to go through. And now, finally, the only person I find ruling with Christ is the faithful servant. The Bible talks about some entering as through flame, smelling of smoke getting to heaven. Getting to heaven, smelling a smoke. And I got to tell you, I don't find anywhere in God's word where you'll be ruling with him. You'll be there. You'll be with him. But I find the conditions are pretty consistent in scripture that this privilege of ruling and reigning is reserved for those who are the faithful and wise stewards and not the foolish steward who's lazy and won't do what he knows to do, and not for the ignorant steward. 
who didn't avail himself of God's revelation. I know this might upset your apple cart a little bit about what you thought eternity was going to be like, but it has a purpose. And the purpose is the same. I share the same purpose of Jesus here, and that is to fairly warn us that we seek the kingdom of God, that we set our heart and our treasure on that world. And there are going to be people that day, that judgment day at the judgment seat of Christ. Men on earth called fools. And God is going to say, well done. You see, we regularly applaud the guy who builds the big barns and fills them up so he can have an easy life. God calls such a person a fool. And he calls the beggar with sores on his body who faithfully did what his master wanted him to do. He calls him son and brings him in cares for him. So I want to warn you because I think the warning is extraordinarily relevant for this generation and for our culture is that we get serious about doing, seeking, treasuring the kingdom of God. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Lord, there's a well, it's disturbing for us this morning, but that's all right. If it affects your purposes in us and draws us near and makes us more serious about obeying your word, Lord, every one of us in our hearts, I believe here, wants to be that wise and faithful steward. But on careful examination, we all humbly come before you and say, there's too much of the foolish servant in us. And Lord, occasionally we even see the qualities of the false servant in us. Lord, we've been given too much in this church to ever claim to be the ignorant servant. And so, Lord, we pray a prayer of submission today. But Lord, we know that ultimately only is substantial if we leave here preparing our lives to do your will. And then, Lord, to do it. We know that you will empower us to do it, provide for us to do it. You've promised to do all that. We just don't believe it. Lord, we pray as the disciples pray, help our unbelief.
Christ Jesus' name. Amen.